Good morning, Patrick. Hi, Elaine. How's it going? It's not morning for you. I know that much. No, no. It's Friday evening here. Well, this is the miracle of modern technology. Exactly right. The reason that we're talking, of course, is that uh, I saw a news article when I woke up that I don't think you'd seen yet. No, I hadn't seen it yet, and you could probably tell from my horrified reaction that it was completely new to me, so. The story is, why don't you tell, uh, so, so why don't you say what the story is and to talk, talk about your reaction when I sent it to you. Okay, so Kim uh, Kardashian has just turned... I nearly said Kim Kardashian, which is my favourite parody account on Twitter. Um, Kim Kardashian has just turned 40 years old, and um, she's gone off to a private island where she's basically managed to get everyone to quarantine for a period of time, whatever else, to have this big 40th birthday bash. And just as everyone was getting over mocking the um, fairly tone-deaf way in which she was boasting about doing that, or at least discussing doing that... Uh, she then reveals that as part of the celebrations, her husband, um, Kanye West, you may have heard of him, um, surprised her with a hologram of her dead father, the uh, lawyer Robert um, Kardashian, who died in, I think, 2003, and who, of course, is probably best known um, in addition to being the father of the Kardashian children, but also best known for uh, defending O.J. Simpson at one point. Absolutely. And and of course, as she put on Instagram, I believe, what an incredibly thoughtful gift, uh, you know, a, um, a holographically resurrected <laughs> dead parent, uh, just when you're at least expecting it. That's, uh, you know, and when you're having a milestone birthday, you know, what better gift could there be, we're asking. And so... Uh, this is a sort of a different situation where the deep faked um, dead are foisted upon the uh, unsuspecting. In this case, thank goodness, at least for what she's saying on Instagram, it was a welcome surprise. Uh, public service announcement, it might not be in all instances, I'm uh, reckoning. If this is something that Kanye has gone off and done on his own without reference to anyone else in the family. So we just don't know that. That would be shocking of him to do something like that. Yeah, that would be so so out of character. Yeah, I was going to say, for a man of his even temper and, and um, good judgment, that would be uh, very hard to imagine. I'm Elaine Casket, and I'm a scholar of death and the digital, and I have a book called All the Ghosts in the Machine. And I'm talking to... I'm Patrick Stokes. I'm a philosopher at Deakin University in uh, Melbourne, Australia, and I have a book uh, called Digital Souls. And we are here today to talk about Kanye West, Kim Kardashian, the possibly best and possibly worst birthday present ever, depending on your perspective, and how Kanye West is the most, 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 most genius person ever, according to Robert. Um, yeah, it's so there's this, these interesting questions here about the ownership of it, but also, as you say, the reaction that people are going to have to it. Um, I just found I had a really visceral reaction to it. And you and I have talked before about um, other instances like this. So um, chatbots of the dead, the late Roman Mazurenko, who was turned into a chatbot, um, the uh, TV show Meeting You that was done in Korea late last year where um, a woman is reunited with her dead seven-year-old daughter um, through a VR headset. Yes, another instance of anticipating that, though, having sort of yeah. signed off on an informed consent for the show, not knowing, of course, ahead of time what kind of psychological or emotional effect it would have on her. But another thing where after the fact, despite people's horror, the mother in question said, this was really welcome to me. It helped me heal something. It helped me put something to rest. Um, and that often that reaction, which if it was authentic, was often swept aside by people who said, well, no, this is still this is still horrible. Uh, but yes, that was another re uh, instance 
process of knowingly going into it. Yeah, and even then, I mean, okay, they go into it. They don't necessarily know what their reaction is going to be, for instance. They know it's going to be difficult. But they've at least consented to it, and they've also speaking as the guardian of the interests of the dead person. They've also given the go-ahead to that. And it's not clear, at least in this case, who's who's given that go-ahead or who had the authority to do so. But again, there may be a whole bunch of things behind the scenes we don't know about. It could be that the rest of the Kardashian family were completely on board with this. I, I cannot say. Um, shockingly, I am not among their intimates. Not yet. Not yet. Well, I don't think I will be after this. But um, it, it seems like um, we have these issues of ownership, but there's also, and this is the thing that really struck me about it, um, is that unlike some other things, for instance, chatbots of the dead, where the um, things that the dead person has left behind online, their online traces, are reanimated through using you know neural networks or AI um, in a way that, at least if you like, um, sounds like the dead person and is somehow based upon what they would have said and is the application of algorithms to things they have said in the past to predict how they would have set, reacted in a new situation. This, to me, looks more like a, a, not even a speaking for the dead. This is almost speaking on top of the dead. Um, this looks a lot less like a reanimation and more like a kind of ventriloquism. I'm assuming that there was a voice actor who would have done the um, the words and it, it's been scripted by somebody else. And surprise, <laughs> Robert Kardashian apparently has a very, very inflated opinion of his um, son-in-law. So he's, he's spends... Oh, yes. I, I, I lost count of the <laughs> most, the most, 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 most genius uh, person in the world, Kim's husband, apparently. <laughs> Whether there's been able to be a voice simulation based upon the raw materials of the, for example, O.J. Simpson trial recordings, uh, which could be one source of source material, hours and hours of, you know, publicly available O.J. Simpson trial recordings, uh, or whether, or whether, as you say, a voice actor was hired to, uh, voice, uh, this, uh, uh, you know, kind of hagiographic <laughs> kind of uh, yeah. account of uh, the, the the Kim's uh, husband, his son-in-law. Either way, it's it's taking an additional step, and I suppose for me, it connects to the whole question of deepfakes and the lack of clarity that is becoming more common online as to the living versus dead status of an entity that we encounter. And there was an article recently in Slate magazine, really excellent overview of phenomena such as Herman Cain continuing to uh, post post you know, pro-Trump tweets after his death from COVID. Um, and yes, most people do know that Herman Cain is dead. However, uh, that kind of thing takes us into pretty dicey territory where people can essentially puppeteer the dead into enacting their own purposes and in manipulating other people's emotions or their political uh, opinions or any number of other things. And that feels really disturbing to me. Yeah, I mean, at least this is a case where no one's under any illusions about what they're dealing with. Um, so at least it's a case where it, it's clearly not actually him. Um, it's stagey in a way he dematerializes at the end of it. Um, and of course he's saying things that the real Robert Kardashian who died in 2003 couldn't possibly know. So about grandchildren. So well, he does actually indicate at one point that he's sort of, um, he's haunting them or he's, he's at least present around them. I shouldn't say haunting. That's probably a little pejorative, but, um, there's something going on there. I think that's 
that's sort of telling, if you like, that sort of, you know, at least there is a kind of implicit sort of, well, it's not really him in a way that, um, the, the, the danger is that with a lot of these reanimations, we will get to a point where we will no longer be able to distinguish who is alive or dead, or at least, and this is probably the, the greater danger, we won't be really care. Um, and so we could actually just start taking these things to be, um, replacements for the dead, particularly if they become sufficiently interactive, if they actually start to, um, genuinely mimic the dead to an extent that's good enough that we're happy to say, yep, okay, I'm going to basically treat that as if my father is still alive and talking to me um, through a hologram. Yeah, and of course people have different takes on whether or not uh, that's a problematic situation in society or, you know, for us as individuals. Um, for one of the places my mind goes to uh, with deep fakes and with this sort of phenomenon which wasn't the case in the situation, the Kanye and Kim situation that we're talking about here, uh, but the possibility for criminal activity or identity theft and impersonation mm. to take place that could then, you know, you're dealing with somebody who's the digital portion of their estate has not been settled or closed down for various reasons, chief amongst which the bereaved or the next of kin often have a devilishly difficult time addressing the digital portion of the estate because of passwords and double passwords and people not leaving behind lists of places they have accounts, etc. And if something, if something, somebody can get hold of that information and present a revivified version of the deceased person, they can mm. actually bleed the estate, that part of the estate dry if they chose. So there's that, and that's a pragmatic concern. But of course, there are more philosophical sociological kind of concerns here and what's your what's your thought about that yeah i mean there's so much going on i'm I'm still processing this to be honest um it, it's it's quite shocking um one thing that did really jump out at me um philosophically was the layers of mediation that are involved here and it seems like with a lot of these reanimation technologies um the more troubling they get the, the fewer layers of remediation there are, if you like. So uh, a text bot that picks up your words and just reuses them um, seems in a way closer to being the dead person themselves and therefore more troubling in a way than something like this where it's been mediated through uh, presumably a, a motion capture actor and a whole bunch of technicians and a voice actor and a script writer um, and also and this is the thing that really actually sort of jumped out at me, was that there was this sharing of memory, right, which is a really um, intimate thing to do, right? So at one point the, the hologram shares with um, uh, Kim Kardashian that, you know, oh, do, um, do you remember when you were little and I drive you around? I think he said something about my, my tiny BMW. Oh, my God. Which is just one of those little details that just makes it impossible to like everyone involved. But um, he... He says, you know, I'm driving around and we, we would sing this song together and he starts singing with it. And what struck me about that was, of course, it's this moment of intimacy, but it's not like reminiscing where you have two people who have formed, I've got a grad student working on this at the moment, which is why it's top of mind for me, but we've got two people who have formed a, a transactive memory system. That is, you've got two people who are sharing a memory and they reconstruct that memory together. Um, that's a very intimate thing to do with someone and it involves the actual presence of those two people. But in this case, what one assumes, this is a story that she's told to somebody else who's then told it to whoever wrote the script. 
um, and then it's uh, been relayed to an actor. And so it's a simulacrum of shared memory, a simulacrum, yeah. a simulacrum of, of reminiscing, which um, to me seemed a little bit troubling because that is a really intimate thing. And it, it has been sort of, um, you know, even if there's a lot of love behind it and there's a good intention behind it, there's something a little bit unsettling about that. Yeah, the kind of question of, oh, okay, the good intentions behind the manipulation, what you were describing there uh, reminds me of the well-known technique of a medium, for example, or some kind of soothsayer mm. uh, trying to access some kind of clue or some sort of element or being fed something, you know, yeah. um, uh, in order to then take that piece of information and, you know, manipulate it and sort of say your father is saying that or your mother is remembering that or whatever. Yeah, I mean, again, it, it, it's somewhat shorn of context, so we don't necessarily know. Like, we don't necessarily know um, if... I'm assuming that Kanye West has had a big hand in writing the script that was recited. Uh, I'm assuming that because it spends, goes out of its way to praise Kanye West. Um, but uh, who knows? Maybe he, he's been told that story by someone else and she didn't know that he's that, uh, that he knows about that story. So it may have actually had that moment of, oh, gosh, you have, no one else could have known this. Um, that does actually seem to be an interesting feature of some discussions of um, – the more, if you like, um, I don't want to say paranormal, but, 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 you know, presented or framed as paranormal experiences around this stuff. So, um, in my forthcoming book, I talk about a couple of these. I talk about David Oderberg gives the example of imagine if you got an email from someone saying, you know, um, you deserve to fail on that test, uh, when you're a kid because, and I know you were angry with the teacher, but you deserved it. Um, and you're thinking, wait, I never told anyone that. Who could possibly have, be sending me this email? Or there was a case in, uh, the US a few years ago in Pennsylvania where, um, a man who had been dead for six months apparently started emailing people and included details that other people couldn't really have known about. Um, now, I suspect in that case there was one particular person close to the case who did actually know about them and, and was responsible for sending those emails, but we don't know. But it's interesting that in those cases, the very fact that there is this apparent intimacy, this apparent um, sense of, hang on, that's something only you and I knew about dead person. That feeds into this acceptance. It feeds into the ability to say, oh, okay, I'm going to treat this as if it's the person. I'm going to accept this at face value rather than sort of digging into it and trying to sort of, you know, lift up the, the sheet and see what's going on in the background. Absolutely. And I suppose, you know, when somebody dies and we miss them and we crave that reconnection with them, if something comes along that really engages our emotions and has the ring of plausibility about it through mm. these machinations, you know, as sometimes it then sort of ceases to matter, as you also talk about in your book, you know, that it's sort of like, even though you intellectually know factually that it's not possible for all practical purposes, it's sort of telically, <laughs> it might as well be possible. It might as well be true. It might as well be true. Yeah. And, you know, and, and you, you mentioned earlier the idea like, well, we don't know context. Absolutely. For example, as you said, we don't know whether, um, he asked other Kardashian family members for their permission. And I wouldn't want there to be an implication, which I don't think you were making, that then that permission from other family members would make it okay, I guess, or from Kim's perspective, because they couldn't have predicted that either. Every other member of the family could have gone, um, yeah, that sounds wonderful. Oh, that's so moving. That's such a good mm. idea. That's great. That'll hit well. You know, that'll land well. 
and then it could have gotten to it. And that could have been the most horrifying thing that Kim could have ever imagined. And so there's an element here, too. For, which is something that I think about in my book of um, like my book, my book and uh, my book, uh, the, um, you know, people believing that they understand or know or can predict what another grieving person mm. is going to want value and be OK with, because it can sometimes be very hard to see past the ends of our own noses with respect to our beliefs about what's good or bad or welcome or unwelcome in grief. And so it's a roll of the dice at the very least that this was going to land. Well, I mean, presumably he knows his wife very well, and maybe he would have been able to predict this with confidence, but that's not always the case. Yeah, it is. And then the question becomes, what do you do in cases of conflict? You know, what do you do when you have um, people who seem to be equally close to the deceased, perhaps have an equal claim somehow to speak for the deceased, uh, who want to do totally opposite things? And I think that a lot of that really is an open question. Like we can say pragmatically, well, we'll just default to not doing it then because, you know, it's a sort of precautionary principle we can fall back on. But I think that's increasingly going to be a big problem with this stuff is mm. – when these conflicts arise, who actually gets to decide or who gets to speak for the dead in that way? And we have legal structures, if you like, and some existing social norms that I guess give us some guidance there, but they primarily talk in terms of, um, in, to in terms of property. They talk primarily about who owns the things the dead leaves behind. This question of who gets to speak for the dead is a much more difficult, much more fraught question. And when we come to the reanimation question, um, I don't think we can address that purely in terms of property rights or who has, you know, the intellectual um, property ownership of uh, the digital traces the dead leave behind. I think we do have to talk about the way in which persons are instantiated in that material and um, therefore who has the right to sort of talk about when a person can be resurrected in this way and under what conditions. A hundred percent. I mean, uh, traditionally, before all this came to be possible, your legal personality ceased as soon as your, you know, kind of carbon-based mm. life form ceased. And now, I mean, here we go. Robert Kardashian was, in essence, through his involvement in the O.J. Simpson trial, a celebrity. And there's a huge amount of publicly accessible, available audio and video footage of the man, you know. And so and anybody, not just Kanye West, but anybody would have the raw materials to do something like what he did for his wife's birthday. Mm. And so if we're, you know, if we continue on in a situation where we don't accord the digital dead some kind of ongoing legal protection, um, you know, I think we're going to be in a very mm. difficult situation as you're, as you're alluding to. And, and you're right. You know, if somebody in the Kardashian family said, yes, I give you permission, essentially, was that a was that just a permission in a legal sense? Was that a permission in like okay, son-in-law or whatever it is? That's fine with me. You have my go-ahead as the widow, for example. You know, but was that actually legally required for Kanye to proceed? I'm not actually sure about that question. I think I know somebody who might be uh, know more about that. But what do you what do you know on that? Was that a legal requirement for him to get that say so? I don't know. I mean, it may well come down to. Um who had the intellectual copyright over the visuals that we used? Because I'm assuming the voice is basically just a voice actor trying to sound like um, Robert Kardashian. Maybe, maybe not. 
Um, but of course, but presumably, but presumably there's there's visual footage that's been fed into a, a computer to produce essentially a deepfake. Um, I mean, I, I'm not entirely au fait with all the technical details that would have gone into this, but it does look like at least at some point there is somebody's some material that's going to be belong to someone that's been put into that. Oh yeah, but that's only going to touch the surface of um, the sort of the, the, the sort of the moral issue here. Uh, you, I mean, you mentioned deepfakes earlier, um, and intuitively, there's something really horrible about producing a deepfake of someone doing something degrading or, or sexualized or whatever that they wouldn't consent to doing. Um, which is, of course, immediately what the internet started doing with that technology once it became widely available. Um, but it's not entirely clear to me that the wrongness of that is changed when the person is dead um, or that if if the person dies, that you're no longer wronging the person who's depicted in the deepfake. You're wronging the person who owns the intellectual mm. property that's gone into the deepfake. Um, it seems like if you were to do that with somebody who's dead, you're harming the person themselves. You're not harming their estate or their loved ones. You are perhaps harming the estate and the loved ones, but you're also doing a harm to that person. It's degrading to the person, not to the estate. Yeah. So, for example, if after someone's death, you use deepfake technology or Pepper's Ghost, you know, holographic wizardry uh, to get them to confess to some dastardly crime they committed in life or to otherwise, mm. you know, humiliate or sort of degrade themselves, then that's something that is corrupting of that person's yeah. character, memory, image, you know, for those, you know, for anybody you associate associated with them, then that's consequential. And, you know, the idea of being able to turn the the data of the dead to any purposes that might suit us, whether it's narcissism or whether it's a well-intentioned, you know, here's a connection with your dead dad or whether it's revenge or whether it's something else, using the digital dead as fodder for these kinds of living person's purposes is problematic. Yeah, and I think what's done with it makes a big difference too. Like the actual specifics of each case are going to matter. Um, so, for instance, you know, the holographic um, shows you can go to where you can pay to go and watch a holographic Maria Callas or um, Buddy Holly or Roy Orbison or Whitney Houston. Um, and apparently they haven't been terribly well received, those shows. In a way, it's like, well, there's something a little crass or a little exploitative about this, perhaps, but it's the person doing what they did in life anyway. Um, and so it's hard to see that they would have a, a really obvious sort of objection to that. Um, reusing, say, the image of Peter Cushing in Rogue One, where he's reanimated into the, the figure of, of um, Grand Moff Tarkin. Um, again, you might say, well, he's played that role before, so it's not a huge stretch to think that this is kind of uh, a reasonably permissible use of the guy, unless there's family members who object Dean. or something like James that. Dean and um, James Dean and then, Well, I was just about to say, yeah. That one's more troubling, I think, because there you've got James Dean appearing in a movie which he had nothing to do with, in fact, set in a war that occurred, well, that began after James Dean had died. Um, that one's, that one troubles me a little bit more. Um, again, you might say, well, the estate owns James Dean and they, they want to license James Dean in this way, they can do that. Um, but when you're actually presenting the person as if they're a living, breathing person giving a performance, it does seem as if there's something morally different about that compared to um, uh, the cases of just reusing old footage of somebody who's died or um, you know, repurposing that old footage for a new movie. It's so interesting that you say own James Dean because it reminds me of um, the fact that some people attain the status of brands, you know, the celebrity kind mm. of brand. And so that, you know, 
Tom Petty official keeps, you know, uh, tweeting or posting, you know, um, any other, you know, so, so it's expected almost sometimes that the kind of ongoing brand occurs and is managed by others, is owned and operated by others. And sometimes celebrities have additional clauses about the kind of right to, to use of their image and their voice and everything that the ordinary person is not going to arrange. And we're not going to put that in our wills necessarily. Really? But of course, the possibility for this kind of technology to be deployed, employed by anyone on anyone raises the question of whether we non-celebrities <laughs> need to be thinking about these things too. Yeah, it does. Or, you know, whether um, legislation, you know, legislatures have to be thinking about this stuff because it, it, it's, it might be a little much to ask every individual person to be managing um, their own protection Indeed. from these uses they may be completely unaware of. Uh, it, Absolutely. But, I mean, but, of course, the issue in this space is always that the technology is just getting a bit ahead of, of our legal and ethical responses to it. Mm. So what's the final take-home message from the Kanye West surprise birthday present story for you? Uh, to me, it's that if you want to throw a surprise party for me, please don't um, bring my dead father in to say that he's haunting me. Um, that's probably not my idea of festivity. Um, but also I think, you know, it's even though in a way it's, it's a lower technology than some of what we've seen. I mean, the Pepper's ghost illusion itself is like 150 year old technology. Um, the deep fake stuff is all relatively new, but we are going to hit a point soon where there's going to be a convergence of these technologies of the deep fake stuff of, um, our ability to manipulate voices of our ability to produce um, genuinely interactive chatbots that sound like a dead person that are based upon a dead person's um, traces. We are very, very close to the point where we are going to be dealing with um, really convincing um, digital avatars of the dead. And I think we really need to be ready for that ethically by the time it gets here and legally by the time it gets here, because it's going to get here quicker than uh, we think it's going to. Well, that's really similar to my call for action public service announcement, too, because I completely agree with you. I think there's a temptation, partly because of the source of the story, to treat this as this niche crazy, oh, look at what these celebrities are up to now kind of mm. reaction, uh, to treat it like that and to dismiss it uh, because of the source as it were, would be to ignore all of those really important, possibly imminently critical issues that there are. Um, and you're correct. We are a lot closer than we think about wholesale ability to deep fake and create avatars of the dead. And unless I think we get to the point where we have a global convention, kind of like we had copyright as a global convention, that we have a global convention or regulation or framework for what we can and cannot do with these kinds of data, we're going to find ourselves in quite a lot of pickles that were unimaginable 20 years ago, but which are here now. So I'm glad we got a chance to talk yeah. about this today. Thanks for chatting with me. Thanks very much. I'm Elaine Casket, and you've been listening to Still Spoken, a new podcast about how the dead live on through story and through technology. I was speaking with Patrick Stokes of the University of Deakin in Australia, whose new book, Digital Souls, is coming out in February 2021 with Bloomsbury. My book, All the Ghosts in the Machine, The Digital Afterlife of Your Personal Data, is available now. Details in the show notes, and thanks for listening.